Hello, and welcome back for our second episode of Opportunity Thrives, where we are committed to better supporting the needs of today's struggling secondary students. I'm Jason Mitchell, your host for this series. Through interviews with students, teachers, administrators, technologists, and education influencers, we want to understand what's working in our schools today, what's not, and how we can have positive, lasting change for the students that we serve. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions on our show. Please click in the podcast notes to leave us a review, to provide your input, or just send us questions. You can also reach us at info at opportunitythrives.com. Today's episode, we are excited to discuss a topic that certainly isn't new, but has evolved with the digital age. We're going to be talking about cheating and more specifically, how to maintain digital integrity when implementing an online curriculum program for today's middle school and high school students. Students have always tried to find alternative ways to take a test or write a paper or ace a quiz. For as long as students have sat in a desk, passed notes with answers, written on their palms, slid answer keys underneath their sleeves, or so many other ways that they've tried to to pass a test. All of those same student motivations apply in a digital setting but the strategies are different when you try and cheat with digital content. And we want to talk about how districts can implement safeguards and best practices to reduce incidences of cheating and academic dishonesty, as well as discuss where many of them might fall short when it comes to digital integrity. Our first guest, John Watson, is the Evergreen Education Group founder and primary researcher. He has two decades of experience in online learning and educational technology. He spends his time conducting, writing, and presenting research, as well as providing testimony on digital learning matters to state boards of education, to legislatures, and charter school commissions. John, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jason. It's great to be here, and I look forward to our discussion today. We also have Dr. Keisha Ray with us here today. Dr. Ray has devoted her career to education technology. She currently runs a consulting firm called K20 Connect. She has written courses for Bethel University, UMUC, and John Hopkins. She's also the former executive director for Senate Center for Digital Education and has worked as an administrator in the Metropolitan Nashville Public Schools, as well as for the Tennessee Commission of Education. She was also named one of the top 10 EdTech leaders by Tech and Learning Magazine and one of the top 100 EdTech influencers by EdTech Digest. Yeah. Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I believe digital integrity is an important topic and we need to continue to address it. Great. Well, thanks, Keisha. We're glad you're here. So to get started, I want to do a little bit of level setting with regards to academic integrity and its counterpart, academic dishonesty. I researched many different school policies, but oddly, the one from my former high school had a pretty straightforward policy when it comes to academic integrity. They broke down academic dishonesty into four areas, cheating, plagiarism, and collusion. And the fourth one was other. (laughs) I think this was their disclaimer. So they basically said, we are aware that new forms of cheating, plagiarism, and other forms of dishonesty may arise. And therefore, we expect our students to interpret the requirements of academic honesty with integrity, with broadly, and in good faith. I thought that was a pretty good uh, definition of academic integrity, and I thought it was a pretty common sense approach to me. So now that we're all on the same page, I wanted to ask 
both of you, if you've had any personal experience supporting districts through a digital learning cheating incident, and what impact did that have on the program and the students and the schools, basically all the stakeholders in in the equation? Keisha, do you want to start? I can take a stab at it. I mean, I've started virtual schools and blended learning programs alike in both K-12 and higher education. And everyone always mentions the challenge of cheating. And I always say that there's really no difference in students, the amount of students who will cheat on ground and those who will cheat online. I've had my share of both. And uh, I think one of the interesting um, paradigms that I've noticed, especially I have a 25-year-old have a son who's recently graduated from college, and his perspective is, um, I would say to him, you know, is that cheating? And he would say, no, it's collaborating. And I would say, do your professors know you're doing that? And he said, they don't care. They told us they want us to collaborate. So I think that their perspective is a little different today, especially if we're looking at, you know, higher grades, middle, high, and and even university. Um, The scandals that I've experienced have been uh, far and wide, but mostly related to when uh, students take advantage of the online environment. And I had, I had a teacher once who, who created an assessment and she didn't uh, design the assessment in such a way that there was a random distribution of questions. So the students got the exact same questions, all of the students. Well, to me, that's a design error where the teacher designed an assessment that really wasn't well suited for an online environment. And I would say the same thing for an on-ground environment. If you've got six sections, you're not going to give the same test to all six sections. You're going to vary it up a little bit. I think we need to think about creating an environment where you have ample opportunity for collaboration and also have multi um, opportunities for assessment and, and varied assessments built into that course so that their knowledge can certainly be measured, but uh, it would it would reduce the amount of opportunities the students would have for actually borrowing answers. Excellent. And John, what about you? Uh, have you supported any districts as they've experienced a digital learning cheating incident? We have. Uh, Jason, you mentioned that Evergreen is primarily a research and consulting and advisory organization. We used to work directly with schools implementing blended learning. And one case in particular stands out. As part of our implementation work with districts, we would often hold student focus groups to find out how they were thinking about uh, the shift to digital. Uh, and when we would hold these student focus groups, we would typically do so without anyone from the district uh, present other than the students so that we would uh, hope that they would give us honest answers. We weren't actually asking uh, specifically about um, academic integrity issues or questions, but it, it came up in one of these student focus groups that we had. And it was really interesting to me because the students seemed to really want to tell me and the other researcher how they were cheating in some of their blended classrooms. Uh, it, it seemed really quite interesting. It, it, they, they saw their efforts to find answers 
on their laptops in the class to be more like a game or a challenge than anything else. I, I remember very clearly, even though this was a few years ago, at one point I said, I, I observed some of your classes. I watched your teachers walking around the room. How could you be Googling the answers in that situation? And uh, about half the students just about jumped out of their chairs because they seemed so excited to show me what they were doing. It, it's almost like they they saw it as a, as I said as a as a game of some sort, and they enjoyed gaming the system. I'm, I'm I'm not sure the extent to which they were really thinking about whether that was right or wrong. Yeah, that's interesting. I think Keisha touched on that same thing when she was uh, speaking about her son. So uh, uh, with that, that particular experience, uh, did you take any, any lessons away with that? So John, John go ahead and, and uh, finish your story. Well, quite a few. And, and uh, a little bit later, I'll, I'll, I want to touch on uh, a couple of the points that Keisha made, because I, I think she's uh, really right on in some of her observations. In that particular instance uh, that I was talking about, of course, we needed to protect the privacy of the students who would talk to us. But we went back to district leaders and we had a really good discussion in a couple of areas. One was about digital citizen and academic integrity uh, from a student perspective so that the district could make it clear to the students that what those students had said uh, really wasn't okay. Uh, Of course, not by directly referencing what those students had told me, but just building in some of those ideas uh, into a district-wide discussion about what digital learning meant at that district. The second area that we had a really good and ongoing discussion about was how teachers needed to work together to rethink assessments uh, and make sure that those assessments weren't based on information that could be easily found via a Google search, uh, which of course is a better way to think about instruction and assessment anyway. Hmm. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, Keisha, what about you? Um, Do you have any experiences that you could share uh, or that any lessons that you could take away? Oh, well, I have an experience that I can share and it kind of dovetails with what uh, John was saying about different ways of doing assessments. Uh, we actually had um, an instance where we had, we were encouraging our teachers to do portfolio assessments and have students uh, take on projects as an assessment tool with a, with a rubric versus an actual kind of online test. And so uh, I was once called by a principal for a YouTube video that had surfaced uh, posted by a group of students after a teacher had assigned the task to create a video that went along with a popular song. And the students were supposed to shoot the video and edit it within, within the first verse of the song. So it was really an assessment of their ability to shoot video and edit within a limited period of time, right? Uh, these students, however, uh, went online. They, uh, this was, this will date or give you a timestamp on when this was. Uh, there was a video that was surfacing at the time where there was a song and kids put masks on and danced while they were singing the song. And you were supposed to do this challenge and kind of one up the next person with a different mask and a different venue, etc. And uh, so the video that I was called into review had our students who had commandeered a district school bus to shoot this video, and they were wearing a mask and only their underwear. So 
with the teacher failed to include in directions for this assignment was just some basic stuff like keep your clothes on and don't post your video until it's been graded. Uh, follow the rubric, just some very basic things that the students took off with this, uh, this task because it didn't have all of the parameters outlined and they went into a direction that they clearly shouldn't have gone in. And um, I think what my takeaway from that experience was we make a lot of assumptions about students' knowledge and ability uh, and therefore we may not be very clear in our directions because we think they know what to do or they understand what we're talking about. Uh, and, and we don't necessarily reinforce good practices through our direct instruction for the, for the activity. So, um, that's a little bit off from an assessment that we would typically think of. But I think when we think of going into the portfolio, uh, range of assessments, you really have to think about the directions that you're giving and the rubric that you're giving. And then especially if you're going to have them create something that's a video of sorts that they don't share it before with the, you know, social media before it's reviewed by their instructor and assigned a grade. Well, there were a lot of lessons that you took away from that experience. And uh, I'm sure that the students and the, the teachers did as well. But those are good lessons. And I'm, I'm glad we have the opportunity to share things like that, because hopefully we can get this stuff right moving forward. And actually, that's that's the question that I, I, I want to go to next is why is it so important to, to get this right when it comes to academic integrity? And John, you want to start off on that? I'd love to, Jason. And and before I speak to that exact question, I, I want to make a quick comment about the story that Keisha just told, because I, I think that's a wonderful story. Uh, it, it's so illustrative of the range of issues that we have to think about as we consider what academic integrity in the digital age means. Because as Keisha was telling that story, I was thinking, that sounds like a 21st century version of a story that could have very easily happened when I was in high school more than 30 years ago. And yet, I could also see the the way that some of those issues uh, would be played up in the media or maybe with a school board or district leadership as a an issue that has been, been created because of the digital element of that story, the the video, the YouTube uh, element of that, and certainly that's part of it, as Keisha explained. But as you indicated in your opening, Jason, it, it, it's not like cheating and academic integrity issues have just arisen since the rise of the internet and the World Wide Web. And in a lot of cases, what we're talking about are really just updated 21st century versions of issues that have probably been around as long as students have been uh, graded and assessed. And and so more directly to your question, Jason, about why is this important to get right, it is to me about these issues really speak to the integrity of instruction and the integrity of assessment. And those are the things that are central to any school or district or classroom. I think it's also illustrative uh, regarding that when digital learning is well-planned, 
it touches on all sorts of issues that go way beyond the technology, way beyond the boxes and wires. And you really have to be thinking about good instructional design. Yeah, that, that was such a great example. As she was telling the story, uh, there were so many things coming to mind about uh, different domains that it crossed over into. Uh, uh, Keisha, from, from your perspective, why is it so important that we get this right? Uh, well, we all have to interrelate in the world today, don't we, Jason? <laughs> and, and technology is a fundamental part of it now. And, you know, there's no job, if you think about it, that anyone can do, even farming, uh, which is usually thought of as a non-technical field, no pun intended, but it very much involves technology. Land of Lakes, if you look online, does a great job of explaining all the technologies in farming. So there's no profession you can go into that doesn't involve technology. And if you don't build the skills when you're in school in, let's just call it a formal program of study, then you won't have any skills to take with you into your profession when you're loaded up with all of this technology. I think um, shift needs to kind of move from thinking about um, the, the cheating and in academic integrity, although definitely that's something you know, I want all of my students to have, but to help them understand what intellectual property is, who owns what, because then they would get it. If I, for let's go back to my son for a minute. If I talk to him about borrowing something, he has no problem understanding it doesn't belong to him. And if I talk to him about, uh, an image, he's a, he's a model now, an image that's online. He's really good at saying, well, I don't own that image. That's a Getty image. They took that image of me. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to them. He gets that concept. If we could take that and transfer it back to them and say, you know, think of it this way, that property doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your, your, you know, your coworker or your colleague or your peer doesn't belong to you. And you've got to respect the fact that it doesn't belong to you. And then I think we need to provide professional development for teachers, not only on how to use these technical tools that they're incorporating into their lessons, but also on how best to implement those. You know, you've got to include a lot more instruction in an online environment, a lot more direction in an online environment than you do in an on-ground classroom. Because in an on-ground classroom, they can come up to my desk or find me in the room and ask me a question anytime they want to. In an online environment, you really have to think through before you post that course, any possible question that a student could ever come up with and then provide that answer course you've got your you know your help desk and things like that but my mantra is to always try to put as much information up for the students so they know what the expectations are and they know what I think you know what what my expectations are around academic integrity I really think that shift in thinking to help them understand intellectual property and who owns what in a digital environment is something that could could reduce our instances of quote cheating that's such an interesting perspective. I've never thought of it that way, but um, I think the example that you use with your son is a 
a, a very clear example that can pertain to a student and they can understand. Although we can't prevent cheating 100% of the time, what would you say are some general best practices that districts can implement to reduce some of the digital cheating incidences that we're seeing today? And Keisha, do you want to go ahead and continue on your uh, sure on that? My rant. <laughs> I really think it's about course design and uh, an instructional design. I'm a big, you know, proponent of that. I think if you think through how you're designing courses and how you've designed assessments and how you've designed projects and activities, then you're going to reduce the amount of opportunities a student's going to have, in you know, to, to cheat or take on someone else's work. I think we also want to make sure that students have, you know, kind of take pride in doing their own work and and have uh, the wherewithal to be um, excited about doing their own independent work. And I think that's more of a social, uh, emotional kind of trigger than it is even an academic one. They have to want to produce good work and they have to want to produce work that can be viewed by others and in a respectful mat, you know, fashion, which is to say they didn't take it from somebody else. Um, and I think that, you know, I think it's important to recognize that these are, you know, these issues have been going on since Socrates walked uh, with his first student. They, this is not new. None of this is new. And a, you know, you're going to, you're going to encounter a, a cheating uh, student in an online environment, just as you would in on ground. And t- chances are, it's going to be the same, same student. And it really doesn't have to do, you know, if provided you've designed the course in such a way that you've accounted for, you know, the majority of, of the factors that would offer it up for them to take answers easily. Um, if they have to work for it, then, then that's just in their character. And that's a whole other, that's a whole other issue that we've got to deal with. I do think a lot of times we're in this drive through mentality. We want to, you know, receive an assignment and five minutes later have it done. Um, even if that means, you know, getting answers from somebody else, the web included. But, um, I really think it is more of a character conversation and a course design conversation. And I think if you can attend to those two things, you would significantly reduce any kind of instances for cheating. I think uh, that's that's really interesting perspective that the scenarios are the same. And a lot of times the even the participants would be the same, but the strategies for mitigating that are significantly different in this digital environment. John, uh, we've seen a couple of news stories recently where students gained unauthorized access to staff accounts. Do you have any advice or suggestions on how uh, we can prevent this from happening? Well, I think, Jason, that obviously it's important to think about issues like unauthorized access and students hacking into systems and and, and related issues. Much, much of uh, those issues include common sense strategies and precautions that we would consider for just about any digital use. Districts should be discreet when distributing curriculum login information to educators. Uh, Administrators should explicitly tell teachers to avoid writing login information 
uh, down and not keep it stored right next to their computer. It, it, it's kind of like when people tell you don't keep your uh, uh, PIN number for your ATM written on the back of your ATM card, right? Uh, some of that is, uh, at least in retrospect, fairly clear and, and perhaps obvious. But I think also there there's an interesting set of examples that come out of quite a bit of what Keisha was talking about and these examples that you're raising about students gaining unauthorized access to staff accounts. And what I mean by that is that unauthorized access or hacking, uh, that type of activity uh, that you're describing is clearly wrong, right? And I expect all students would recognize it as such. But at the other end of the spectrum, there are actions that students may take that aren't so clear except to them. Uh, And uh, certainly, I've known students who had plagiarized and they didn't realize that it was wrong. They thought that they had found an answer that was appropriate and they cut and pasted that into their their uh, document or their test or, or whatever, uh, and and they didn't recognize that that was wrong. So as Keisha referenced, uh, there's there's an element of educating students around those issues as well. But I even take that a step further because when you think about some of the common ways that, uh, especially people who are involved in education, but perhaps not as deeply experienced with digital learning, may not uh, understand quite all of these nuances. For instance, I hear fairly routinely the idea of, well, how do you how do you do an online course or a blended course uh, in a situation now when students can just search online for all the answers? They can do a Google search and it's right there. I work an information company, right? And if I hire a researcher to do something, what's the first thing I expect them to do? I expect them to do a web search. Right. If somebody came to me and said, "Well, I, I can't find that information," and I found out they didn't do a web search, uh, that person wouldn't be working for us for very long, right? So, what we're saying is, student cheating is, in fact, the very first way that most people are going to seek information at this point. Clearly, there's more nuance in it than that, but I think it points to the fact that we're in a different age relative to information being available. Uh, and Keisha touched on this. I'll I'll talk a little bit more about plagiarism as well. Uh, When I'm uh, putting together the first draft of a report, often what I'm doing is gathering information from all sorts of different sources, interviews and reports and websites. And I'm just gathering tons of information. I can tell you honestly, I live in fear that at some point I'm going to pull something from somewhere and not do a good enough job of noting where that came from and that it was somebody else's work and inadvertently publish it and myself be accused of plagiarism. And, and so that's, again, just to draw out the the continuum of actions that students may be taking, some of which are clearly wrong, some of which are uh, not so clear at all. And in fact, some of which we would celebrate in the professional work uh, or professional world in which we're all seeking uh, good and useful information. I'm glad you brought that up. I I think what's becoming evident is that the lines are blurred between academic integrity, what's honest and what's dishonest. And it depends on your perspective. It depends on your environment. And I think you're you're both doing such an incredible job of illuminating 
experiences or examples of, of, of just that. Um, Keisha, I'm going to change the, keep the conversation the same, but change the direction a little bit. Since you've um, written curriculum for universities at that level, specifically focused on digital curriculum, um, are there certain components or, or features that people who are seeking digital curriculum should look for when it comes to safeguards against cheating and supports for academic integrity? Sure. Well, you know, first of all, you want to make sure that when in your course design that you kind of outline all of your expectations around academic integrity at the very beginning. And I always like to have my students kind of sign off on that or click that they agree uh, or disagree. And oddly enough, I have had some students have disagreed. I'm like, okay, now this is a learning opportunity. Um, and then, you know, I always, 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 especially in the K-12 environment, recommend uh, partnering with curriculum providers who have kind of a mastery-based approach um, and that can customize the content. I also recommend gating content. So you don't, it depends on the grade level uh, and I have my own opinions, opinions about that, but uh, definitely uh, in K-12, it should be gated to where students kind of have to complete one for portion before moving to the next portion. Um, I think assessments, uh, having, you know, a real viable question bank, uh, having uh, a variety of ways that you introduce those questions, and that's just not uh, to attend to any kind of a cheating opportunity, but also learning style and learning, well, everybody's learning style has gone away, but how students react to the assessment is individual to that student, right? So having enough questions in your item bank that a student can identify with a question and respond appropriately to that question. And then, you know, just to have a really good policy on, on online course development or on participating in online courses. Um, you need to have, uh, you know, teacher reset restrictions or requirements, uh, student access requirements. In the virtual school that I started, um, I wanted to see the student uh, either on video or in person at least once a semester um, to, to develop a relationship. We had a student center. So things to kind of attend to that character side of academic integrity. When they know there's somebody watching, there really is somebody watching, um, I've even shown up at someone's house when I saw that they were cheating and uh, come to find out um, they kind of had a good reason for it. Uh, and you'll have to stay tuned to future podcasts to see what that reason is. But um, I think there are lots of ways that you can safeguard against it in the academic environment. You just have to be thoughtful and you have to kind of also be predictive. You have to think about what they could potentially do and then develop uh, a channel that can guard against that. So I think this, this is germane to your, your previous point. When students are using tools to cheating, specifically those question and answer sites available, um, what do we do about that? Well, <laughs> when they're going online, I mean, when they're going on like message boards, websites, etc., and, and, 
you know, there's plenty of, of very entrepreneurial children who have uh, put up websites that will actually charge you to go in to get the answers and use them for the course, um, which is ingenious for that student. And I always tell them when I catch them, you should have gone into business school. This is the school of education. We are free for everybody. So, you know, I know you run into a lot of stuff when you're an online teacher. Um, but I think they definitely pose a significant threat to academic in- in- integrity. I think it also kind of goes to that intellectual property conversation that I was pointing out earlier. Um, all of this material that's created by these dig- digital curriculum providers is, is copyrighted. So if you take that course and you put it up somewhere else, test you know, questions, et cetera, it's all copyrighted. Kids don't get copyright today. And that's what I uh, always try to incorporate into my course design is, you know, like a 10 minute thing on, uh, on copyright so that they can go through this. That's usually one of the first modules I ever make them go through so they can have a deeper understanding of what, what it is and what can happen. And then, especially when teachers use it, I had a teacher that used, uh, copyrighted content to develop a course and then she sold it on uh on on their popular uh website Mm. where you can develop activities and then sell it and never dawned on her but when the company uh that she had uh violated contacted me and said you know i need you to pay this fine for copyrighted material uh, I charged the teacher too. I said, it's my fault. Part of it's my fault because I didn't train you. I didn't teach you. I didn't give you the development so that you knew that this was wrong. But part of it's your fault because you have a college degree and surely somewhere along the way, somebody taught you about copyright. And so she had to pay part of the fine as well. Um, I think, you know, enforcing copyright and making sure that uh, districts um, consider when and how students can kind of have access to uh, to material is, you know, is, is one way to curb it. Um, I, I want to continue down that, that uh, road a little bit further. Um, I'm going to ask John this question. When, when we think about what, how we monitor our students and when they're going online and what they're, they're searching, um, we can't stop them from going online altogether. So, John, what are some of the ways that we can minimize this opportunity or distraction when students are, are in class? Jason, there's a few ways that uh, schools and districts are, are thinking about these issues. And of course, restricting internet usage isn't new. It's not specific to schools or, or to classrooms. Uh, it's a nationwide, district-wide problem and, and something that uh, many parents think about at, at home as well. One approach a lot of districts are are taking is the use of network firewalls and content filters to help restrict student access to undesirable uh, web content. Uh, typically, there's a couple of ways of doing this. You can either allow access to certain sites or you can restrict access to all other uh, content uh, and uh, or block access to specific sites while allowing access to other sites that are essentially pre-approved. Lots of districts use a combination 
uh, of these two methods. Um, again, a combination of blocking some internet sites and or uh, explicitly sending students to other sites as well. When you include some of uh, this type of filtering, it can certainly be uh, a step in the right direction towards some of the uh, efforts and tools that Keisha was talking about. But I want to stress again that I, I think the way that Keisha is talking about some of these issues around using really good course design overall is a better approach uh, than primarily relying on internet filtering. Uh, we've actually seen quite a number of instances where as a school or a district is trying to move towards using more digital learning, they actually find that the filtering that was in place earlier uh, is a hindrance to that type of shift because far too many sites are blocked, too, far too many legitimate sites are blocked. Uh, so this really speaks to having more of an approach of working with students so that they're understanding uh, both um, digital citizenship, academic integrity uh, types of issues much more broadly, and not eliminating that type of filtering, but probably reducing it uh, where you're relying more on the day-to-day -day activities of students and teachers instead of a technology-based solution around filtering. Great. Those are great tips. And I think you raise a very interesting point that as users and, and districts evolve in their sophistication level, that something that may have served them early on may, may no longer. Um, that, I thought that's a great point. Um, <laughs> Keisha, since you said that um, you've shown up to a student's house or you, you've charged a... Uh, uh, a, a teacher part of a fine for a copyright infringe, infringement. Um, I'm going to ask you the question about what should you do <laughs> if you suspect a, a student or even a teacher of uh, academic dishonesty? I did open myself up for that one, didn't I? Um, well, you know, the main, you know, what I always like to do, student or teacher, is is to turn it into a teachable moment. And, and it also should be teachable to me, right? I should learn something out of the experience too. So one thing I've learned is to work with my content providers so that um, I can get reports and I can kind of understand better um, how much time they're spending on assessment versus instruction. Um, if there's an unusually short time that they're on instruction, but yet they ace a test, I'm like, really? Um, and then also, um, having them kind of keep administrators in the, in the loop about any questionable activity they're seeing. But, you know, I think it's, it's related to, you know, if the instruction or if the course is compliance or compelling, right? Do I have to create this course because the district's doing online courses and they want us to create these courses? Or is it compelling to create this to court to get my uh, content area kind of leveled up so that my students can have a better interaction with the content than what I'm able to provide in person? Is it compliance that I have to take this course and uh, you know pass it with a certain you know grade so that I can move on and get my diploma? 
or is it compelling that I take this course so that I can learn all of this stuff and apply it to my college career or my, um, my professional career after I get out of high school or college. And I think the things that are more compliance driven are where I tend to see the dishonesty because they, it's not engaging. It's not something they're really into. If it's compelling and teachers and students alike are just so into it and they really enjoy it and they're having a great time and their experience is very positive, then they don't even think about cheating. It's like me on my diet. If I've got the best diet food in the universe, I don't even think about being on a diet. But if I'm eating tuna fish every day, I'm going to grab that chocolate candy. It's going to happen. So make it more compelling than compliance driven. And I think we can reduce the amount of uh, cheating and other uh, activities that we don't like. Excellent. I, I think you are right on the money in that. John and Keisha, your perspective on how to support districts and how to manage digital integrity has been incredibly valuable. I think our listeners will be able to apply several of the suggestions right away. Thank you again for your time today. And we look forward to listener feedback on today's show. Please ping us with questions and comments at info at opportunitythrives.com or write us a review on iTunes. Thanks so much for listening in today and we'll see you next time.